Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleague, Danny. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. And I guess podcaster is Tom Farr, who comes from the Centre to End All Sexual Exploitation. Hi, Tom. Hi, Alan. Thanks, Tom, for coming on. And we're going to discuss the somewhat involved subject of pornography. This is a subject that your organisation campaigns on. Mm -hmm. And to provide a bit of context, you in your organisation highlight the perils of pornography in its its broadest sense. And, you know, the dangers and the implications and the fact that basically you're saying something needs to be done about it. Yes, correct. So let's start off with saying or asking, what is pornography? Because we all seem to know what pornography is, but actually when you start to analyse it, it's quite complex. It's not just a smutty picture. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And you're so right in thinking we all seem to know what it is. But actually, it's quite difficult to define with something succinct. So what we like to focus on at CEASE is quite particularly the, the commercialised elements of the sex industry, because there is a grey area there where there may be, you know, consenting couple who record things for their own enjoyment and some people would say that's not necessarily pornography you know that there are as you mentioned sexual elements to it but it's not necessarily something that is then put out into the world on one of these mainstream websites so for us the defining and dividing line there is when it becomes commercialized when it becomes put out into the world on one of the mainstream sites or when people are profiteering from it or when companies are profiting from other people's production effectively. And and that's what we say is the dividing line within the porn industry. What about art? When does art become pornography? I think that's it's quite a contextual question. It's not to to dodge it by saying things that happened or things that were produced tens or hundreds of years ago different just because they are but there there is an element of that because if you look at the way that the porn industry has developed certainly over the past two decades the material that's now produced is so far removed and for different reasons it's so far removed in terms of the actual content that's in there is it's it's no longer just renaissance nudity for instance Mm -hmm. It, it is effectively you know there is a canyon of difference between the actual content and also who is profiting from it and why they are doing it. So preparing for this podcast, 
well, well, I went onto the internet anyway. So Melissa's going to think, oh, here, here we go. What's Alan been up to? <laughs> so anyway, but, you know, in all seriousness, if you start to look to see what's going on, you know, very, very sort of sophisticated technology is being used for what could be considered in some quarters pornographic. A couple of hundred years ago, an artist would have set up his easel and got out the paints and had a, had a model and, you know, painted whatever. Now you've got digitalization and everything that, you know, we're sort of yeah. seeing on, on in, with the internet and technology and so on. Like a cartoon characteristics, you know, of, of a person. And, you know, it's clearly extremely intimate and so on. And you're thinking, well, is this art or is it actually pornography? Because presumably, you know, these very sort of 21st century images could be used commercially. Someone may say, well, actually, that's a rather interesting drawing. That's a rather interesting digitalized picture of this particular person. And I'm not offended by it, even if the maker of that image goes on to sell that image so so, you know it's consensual it's an adult they've had this drawing made cartoon like but they like it and they pay for it and you can say well that's simply a matter of taste it's a work of art you may think well you know actually it's it's crude it's not very nice but you know involved they think it's great so i'm thinking well who are we to judge who are we to say that this isn't art but it's it's yeah of course Quite a few things there that I would say it's sort of important to disentangle in that you've touched upon the industry as it's developed in recent years. And you mentioned the kind of digitization and, and how the Internet works. And this is something that we have just released actually at CCUK is, is this big report called Exposed Big Porn. And it looks at the commercial aspects of the entire industry and you know how there is profiteering going on from not simply self-commissioned nude image but actually vast swathes of illegal abusive and objectively exploitative content so that's the one side of it in terms of you know how the industry differs from the kind of individual self-commissioned painting that i think is is really important to recognize the second point is actually to do with the content itself in terms of you know you you talk about this idea that somebody might have a crude painting or a cartoon style image commissioned of themselves i think that's it's at best an interesting thought experiment because actually the majority of pornographic content nowadays is so far removed from that and i'm talking about millions and millions of images and videos that are increasingly degrading increasingly violent and it's no longer if, if you look back to say that the porn industry of, you know, the, the kind of 60s, 70s and 80s, where I think people almost look back with a kind of misty eyed appreciation for this, you know, magazine under the bed trope, that is a bygone era. So what we have now actually is, is no longer this kind of representation of sexuality, if you know it was ever that in the first place. But actually, now what we have is pornography being done predominantly two women and this is this is something that we've seen over many many years of research is that the the actual footage and the imagery itself is becoming increasingly violent increasingly degrading and increasingly commonplace so it's a, it's a trend effectively so 
while I take your point that, you know, that there may be the individual instances of somebody having this kind of smutty arts created for themselves. That's not what we're getting at effectively when we when we criticize the wider industry practices. So what you're concentrating on is what we most right-minded people would say is actually what's obscene because it involves exploitation and everything that goes with exploitation. Yes. And part of the issue within that is actually educating and alerting the public to how prevalent that is. Because as you've said, you know, most right-minded people would be against that and, mm. and are, you know, there's no reason to believe they're not. But actually but the, the kind of knowledge gap that comes into play is when people don't realise how prevalent that exploitation or obscenity in legal terms, you know, how, how commonplace that actually is. And, you know, for instance, child abuse material is enormously commonplace. But people don't recognise that. People don't always recognise the actual material itself, even when it's placed in front of them. But they would object to watching it. So it's yeah. about raising that issue in the yeah. consciousness with the public. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, Tom, actually, was having looked at your website and one of the points that you raised, which I thought was really interesting, was the actual impact on children and we're not talking about children being featured in pornography but the impact on you know specifically perhaps younger teenage females because this is almost becoming expected when other people are watching it we know that children these days have a lot more access to technology that isn't filtered by parents and what you're seeing in respect of that and your concerns there yeah that's another sort of massively increasing area of concern in that, again, it goes back to the digitization of porn, the porn industry, in that access to the internet more widely is becoming much, much easier for everybody, but particularly for young children. And what follows from that is access to a vastly unregulated, unmonitored mainstream pornography industry. So unfortunately, what's starting to happen is, you know, it's twofold. Effectively, you have young children accessing pornographic material from the ages the NSPCC found this you know from the ages of six and seven which is you know it's sort of unfathomable I I didn't even have a mobile phone until I was I think 11 or 12 Uh, but now you know this is this is something that effectively has been completely normalized then what that has is a knock-on effect as you mentioned Danny towards young girls both in terms of how they're perceived within sort of younger relationships, but also what we say is wider society. They're viewed as increasingly sexualized and young girls are feeling an increasing pressure to conform to what we say is a pornified version of themselves, you know, because either they appeal to that and they're appealing or they don't and then they're invisible. So it's this this awful dichotomy where they, they have to conform to this idea of sort of pornification that's been completely normalized. And then on the other hand, you know, for what is increasingly young boys being able to access this content is it's having absolutely horrendous mental and physical health impacts on them. And this isn't this isn't just, you know, a kind of, for want of a, a less loaded phrase, pearl clutching, moralising. But actually what we're seeing is young children now with increased levels of anxiety, depression, psychologically stunted emotional development physical impacts. I mean, young children now going to the doctors for erectile dysfunction because of the links it has mm. porn overuse. And this is, you know, a world that you couldn't even imagine 
10, 15 years ago. And of course, in a previous podcast, we touched upon the fact that, of course, particularly with lockdown and mm. children, young people being at home more, therefore access to the internet has increased and become perhaps for some easier. They see it as a means to experiment. And so they're, make, they're making contact with folk, for want of a better term, that they shouldn't um, be having contact with. And so that sort of, I guess, is a route into actually participating in pornography, either as experimentation or in return for pay for money. Yeah, this was a massive, it is a massive issue, but as you mentioned, particularly during lockdown, because there was an increase in screen time for everybody, I would imagine, you know, for whether you're an adult working from home or whether you're a child with, with less to do. And what this sadly facilitated was the access for uh, groomers or paedophiles to, to capitalise on it, and particularly within the context of the lack of regulation and the lack of safeguards that social media sites have for this type of thing. And there was a big expose on this in the Sunday Times, actually, that we worked on last year, where Instagram was turning a blind eye effectively to the behind the scenes messaging of adults to young children. And what they were doing, as you know, as you've said, Alan, is effectively grooming them, encouraging them to sexualize themselves at you know one end of the spectrum but then it, it can certainly lead and does lead to actually engaging in sexual activity which you know i mean that's euphemistic these children are being exploited and abused and it's it's unfortunately a byproduct of the access to the internet going back to something you said earlier about exploitation of course you know being very open about all of this there are people who choose to be exploited you know, that's part of their, their makeup. They like violence. It's part of their, part of who they are. Yeah, I think that I, I, it's interesting that the way you phrase that initially, people who like to be exploited, because I think that it's a respectfully, of course, a false distinction there, where actually, if that's the case, theoretically, you know, in this hypothetical situation, that they wouldn't be being exploited if they are fully consenting to these things and mm. they're not being exploited. Yeah. However, the issue is what we sort of say in a, in a broader level is that actually, firstly, there's usually a, a larger power dynamic at play where, again, as with prostitution, the porn industry is predominantly, although not certainly not exclusively, there is a power dynamic of male sexual supremacy where it's overwhelmingly men administering violence against women or is more widely other men so there is this kind of normalization of sexual violence and and there's a point where you know we object to this and we say well we do not think that that is a good thing because if you look at and this goes back to to what i was saying to danny if you look at the impact this is having on quote unquote real life you know that the interactions between men and women and, and men and men and to a lesser extent but certainly this is becoming slightly more common women and women within their relationships. It's normalizing sexual violence. Well, that's an interesting that. insight, isn't it? Because, you know, we, you know, in our work, we do come across situations where people are in these sort of relationships where there is that kind of behavior. 
But it's interesting that you're saying, well, maybe if you step back, it isn't necessarily informed consent. It is normalization. It's someone adapting yeah. you know, to a violent relationship. And they, in order to cope, they normalize it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this really is the point that I want to emphasize. I'm grateful to you for picking up on it, is that it's not that it's excusing it, saying, oh, you know, if people consent, that's fine. Actually, the overwhelming point is that we would say, and, and there are myriad examples of this happening, where people leave those situations, as I'm sure you're familiar with it, with your work, but also the wider analysis of, of individuals who've been involved in the porn industry, they've left that environment. And as you've said, they've, they've reflected and said it wasn't informed consent. And it, it was really an, an abusive dynamic. And that is the point that actually I really would like to drive home is that that is overwhelmingly what it is. And that's why it needs to be put under the microscope in effect. Understood. So what, as a society, what should we actually be doing? Yeah. You know, because as, you know, stepping back, so to speak, you know, you've only got to go onto social media or the internet mm. and it's there. It's sort of normal in, in a way. Yeah, it is. And it's, that's uh, precisely the point is that it is everywhere. So I would say that there are two things that we should look to do as a society First and foremost is education, because this isn't this isn't about banning porn. It's not about brushing it under the rug. You know, this isn't a kind of Mary Whitehouse-esque tirade. What we're saying is that there are very real, very tangible harms that result from the porn industry and from, you know, the overt sexualization of predominantly women within that industry setting within, you know, that extends to relationships sort of sexual attitudes, uh, women's self-esteem, men's self-esteem, physical health, all these issues. And it's about educating people about those things and presenting the evidence to them. And it is about showing them the, the absolute wealth of evidence that is available to prove this. But the second issue is one of legislation. Is that up until now, the porn industry has gone under the radar in terms of how it's regulated. And again, this is something that we touch upon in our exposed big porn report at CIS, that the industry up until now has has evaded scrutiny because there are very, very few regulations. And if there there are any regulations, these these websites have their own terms and conditions. They very, very rarely abide by them. So we need to see some kind of regulation in place that imposes a duty of care on these websites to I mean, we're not asking for much. We're asking for basic things such as checking the age and consent of performers or making sure those under the age of 18, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds are not accessing this content. And it really isn't. We say it's not a big ask. But it's well, they may turn around and say it is a big ask because, I, you know, you wonder, you know, if little Joe, age 12, is at home during the day, mum and dad are busy at work or whatever, and he's able to access the parent's laptop or whatever and log on, how would the... Well, we'd want to see the age verification protocol that was within the Digital Economy Act implemented. Unfortunately, the online safety bill that's due out at some point is still in its draft form, but that expressly repeals age verification. And it confounds me, honestly, because it was ready to go 
not only that, but the industry was mainly on board with it. I mean, they, they weren't hugely happy with it, but after a lot of campaigning, they, they got behind it and then it wasn't implemented. So now there's, there's nothing there. And this, and it was never meant to be a silver bullet. It was never meant to be something that wholesale solves the issue. What it was meant to do is provide an extra barrier between young children accidentally or possibly intentionally stumbling upon it. And they're not doing that, but now there's nothing. So we, we really, really kind of need to get to grips with that and have a barrier in place. Okay. But I'm intrigued as to how effective that kind of barrier would be, because if little Joe, age 12, probably more savvy with the use of the laptop than his mum and dad is, is just able to bypass. And I think, you know, how can you use the internet to stop someone lying about their age or lying about who they are, lying mm. about the fact that they are underage? Yeah. Well, that's the, that is the big... The big if. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a big, big issue that's come up this week alone in regards to when our listeners all have heard it. You know, the football has been over and there was a lot of trolling and things like that. And they were saying, you know, identifying who someone is on that the internet, whether it is, you know, someone that is a child or an adult, or it, it's just almost impossible at this time and that safeguarding should be brought in so that anyone that's using it, the internet and has got a profile on any form of website, whether it be social media or something else, should have to have this verification. But with like anything, would it then be faked? Would some, you know, a child use their parents' ID without their knowledge? I guess, again, it just leaves potential loopholes, no matter what the changes could be. Yeah, of course. And without commenting on the idea of identity verification more widely, because I think that raises you know, other issues depending on what the website is. But I think there's two points with regards to the porn industry. First and foremost, as I've mentioned, we're in agreement that this wouldn't be a silver bullet. It, it can't be. You know, the internet just doesn't function like that, unfortunately. It was never meant to be that. It was meant to be one piece of, of the jigsaw. The second issue is that we really want to just put an obstacle in place. These obstacles are being presented as insurmountable hurdles, when actually they're not, because we have age verification and identity verification for other websites, gambling websites, betting websites, things like this. So it exists. Mm. You know, but even within the porn industry, we have OnlyFans, which you need to verify your age to a very limited extent, but it still exists. So these obstacles are being presented as something that's completely alien to the internet, and it's not the case at all. It's just they've not been implemented yet. Okay. The last issue on this subject that I wanted to talk to you about briefly, given that it's in the news again, the issue of race. So mm. you've got a insight or a take on the position of race when it comes to pornography? Yeah, it's again, this, this follows a, a very predictable trajectory, unfortunately, in that the porn industry commodifies every single aspect of somebody's sexuality in terms of if they are a performer. So first and foremost, predominantly female, women women performers, not exclusively, but predominantly. And then what happens is that you can go onto a mainstream site now and you can break down a woman by a category. You know, it can be anything from her hair color to her height and on the question you mentioned, her race. 
So what we see now is an enormous fetishization and commodification, not only of women in terms of their sex, but also in terms of their race. And it's completely sexualized. And usually what happens is sexualized in completely racist context. So for instance, you have uh, black women who are portrayed as within like a slavery context, or you have Thai women who are portrayed as Thai brides or Thai cleaners, you know, the, the kind of grotesque stereotypes that you'd be familiar with in, in a kind of racist context. What then happens is that's, that is sexualized and that creates the kind of environment or the context for the pornographic scene to play out. And it, it's honestly, it has no end to the depths that, that you could find. It's digging the pit even deeper, really, isn't it? If that's what's, yeah. that's what's happening. It is. It is yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, on that very sort of sombre note, thank you, Tom. I suspect over time it will be a subject that we will come back to discuss yet again. So thanks, Tom, for taking us through some very difficult subjects. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you, podcast listeners. Thank you, Danny. And do join us for our next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.